All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Hot Isle. Today is episode number nine. It's the 24th of July, and uh, I am here with my illustrious host, Mr. Brian Carpenter. Brian, how are you doing this morning, buddy? Uh, I'm doing great. I can tell you haven't quite woke up yet because you called me a host. I am a co-host. Co-host. We are are partners in this thing, um, and uh, we own it together. It's our baby, so co-host, please. This is true. You know, I'd hate to see what this baby actually looks like if it were represented in real life, but uh, I think we're doing okay so far. I'm sure there's an app for that, but let's uh, <laughs> let's let's move on. Right on. So today, the, the the goal of the show is really to educate you guys on on all the cool stuff that uh, EMC's Advanced Software Division is doing, and really make it relevant to the the broader IT community. So we want to talk about things like object stores, like. Is it the future of storage, or is it just another way to consume storage? We're going to talk about Project Caspian. So you may have heard about this from EMC World um, and our illustrious leader in the pre-sales community, Chad Sackick. Uh, we want to talk about open source, right? So why is EMC moving towards open source and making things free and frictionless, right? So you may have heard of Project Copperhead, and we'll talk more about that. And then also just software-defined storage and the software-defined data center in general, right? What does that mean? Where is it going? And uh, really, why should you care? So we, we brought on today probably uh, the, the, four, the foremost person that can talk about that from the EMC community, and that is uh, Monavir Doss. And so Monavir is the Senior Vice President of EMC's Advanced Software Division. So Monavir, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Brent, and it's a real pleasure to be on. And I couldn't think of a better way of spending my time. Excellent. Well, well again, thank you for joining us. I, I know you're out there in Seattle, so um, it's not too early for you. Um, you probably were up very early this morning reading all the trade rags and learning learning more about your craft. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's a twenty seventh, twenty four seven world now, so sleep is overrated. <laughs> so what's the first thing you do when you wake up? Do you, do, you, do you reach for your iPad, your iPhone? Are you checking your emails? Or um, are you, is there a specific website or something you guys you go to, to to learn about what's going on in the industry? Actually, you know, I shouldn't admit this, but uh, it doesn't even start in the morning because we have a number of customers who use our stuff, uh, you know, service providers who really do use it around the clock. So in my Outlook rules, I have uh, certain email aliases and things where if a, if a note comes into any of those, then my, my iPhone dings for me, you know. And so so sometimes it doesn't wait until the morning because I like to keep on top of things and know when, when anybody's got an issue. So, uh, But yeah, you know, I of course, the, the, the rags, I, I like going to uh, websites of uh, folks who I think are leaders in the industry to see what they're announcing and what they're up to. And I'm fortunate to have an awesome product management team that always keeps me up to date. So once a week or so, I get a I get you know a fresh update on what everybody's up to and where things are going. And you know, I'm a researcher by background. I I, I have a PhD, so I love to read, especially research papers, to see sort of what the state of the art is and what it might be a few years down the road so uh, you know the thing I always tell my team is everything else is fine but I don't ever want to hear that what we're building is not state of the art so and and speaking of your teams you actually have quite a few uh, teams that are 
that are uh, you, you know part of your your organization there. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about those, right? So you have the yeah, you, you know, you have the product engineering team, and I'll let you go on. You probably say it a lot better than I do. Yeah, so basically, uh, ASD, Advanced Software Division, it's a business unit. We're part of the Emerging Technologies Division. And so what the business unit really means is I have the engineering team, which is people spread all across the globe, and then product management, where we basically, you know, understand what the customer wants and might want, and we plan product roadmap. And then we have a team that that works very closely with the field and with customers, in sort of a delivery role, which is a buffer between the core engineering team uh, and the customer to really make sure that the customer is successful. Um, you know, obviously we have uh, CTO and architecture and all of that. And and we also have a little team that sort of tracks the business end to end and how are we doing and, you know, what are the trends in M&A and which company should we be looking at? What are the technology trends? So whatever it takes for us to run the business effectively. And it's a distributed team. We have folks, um, you know, all over the world, China, Russia, India, every part of the U.S., Canada, uh, so pretty much anywhere you can throw a dart with somebody. And so what all, uh, you mentioned all the teams, those teams own, uh, at the end of the day, they kind of own some products. What are all the different yeah. products that kind of fall under your umbrella? Yeah. So we are responsible, firstly, for all of the object storage platforms at EMC. So this is Pentera, um, which is a compliance archive, Atmos, which was our first generation sort of cloud object storage, and ECX, which is the new object storage platform that, that we've uh, built over the last couple of years, for which we have version 2.0 now. Um, in addition to that, we do a variety of products that are on the management side of the house, the control plane, so to speak, uh, related to software-defined storage. So this is under the moniker of Viper. So we have Viper Controller, which is for storage automation, and we have Viper SRM, which is for monitoring and reporting. And then we have a, a product called the Service Assurance Suite. As some folks might uh, recognize a product called Smarts, which is part of that, which is used heavily by telcos and folks in, who care about what their network is doing. Um, and then we have a technology called PowerPath, which is used to see, uh, you know, sort of track end-to-end -end how things are going across the span. Uh, the, you know, the commonality to all of this stuff really is, number one, uh, we are the software team. Everything we do, regardless of whether we ship it as software or whether we package it with hardware, it's all actually implemented as software, it's software first, and then, you know, we package with hardware sort of as a convenience. And that's why we refer to all of this stuff as software-defined. Um, and then uh, we are really the folks who are thinking about Platform 3 and what does it take to enable the modern developer building modern application. And so we, uh, all of these things we're working on are just building blocks to help the modern application developer. Very cool. Yeah, and speaking of modern application development, you actually you actually came here from uh, your your previous job was at this this company. I think they're also kind of in the Washington area. They're they're small. <laughs> they're small little place, right? They're a small little place, and the thing I always joke with uh, uh, my friends about is you know, EMC's had a really great track record of identifying you know opportunities to to acquire companies that are doing great stuff that might turn out to be big. VMware obviously is a great example. Uh, in my particular case, 
the company was I was at was probably a little too big for EMC to go acquire, so they acquired me instead. And not just me, but uh, we have a number of folks uh, from the same background, from the same company at EMC now, and we all sort of cut our teeth on the cloud. Um, and what that means is, yes, we built the whole product stack uh, for the cloud and engineering stack for the cloud, but more importantly, we operated that thing ourselves. That's what you do when you're a public cloud provider. And uh, we had to sort of learn the hard way what it took to operate a very large service at scale. And um, that's actually why I came to EMC, because you know once you've learned how to do that, you really have the ability to build a set of products in the right way so that people who want to operate these at scale in the cloud will have the right uh you know, the right piece of And so you also, one of the other things we also discussed, and I'm not sure if you're still doing this, but you at one point were a affiliate professor uh, for computer science at, at the U of W. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, at the University of Washington. So I did that uh, for, for a couple of years, taught graduate classes there. And, you know, I think the thing that people sometimes miss is that this whole industry is very much rooted on technology, which is rooted on strong computer science. And so the best thing, you know, I could advise anybody to do, uh, you know, in this field or in my position is to stay absolutely at the state of the art of technology. And the best way I can imagine doing that is to immerse yourself in a strong academic environment where you're with the best professors, you're with the best students. And uh, that way, it's amazing what you learn every day and the ideas you see come up and the folks you can brainstorm with. Um, it really uh, goes a long way. Yeah. So you're kind of like the Stephen yeah, Hawking. Yeah. You're kind of like the Stephen Hawking of computer science. That's what I'm hearing. No, I'm not at all. But I've been fortunate to, uh, to spend a lot of time with folks like that. And I've probably taken 5% of all the the wisdom and intelligence I've got from these other people and tried to translate it into into the products we build. But but you know it is since you mentioned it is it is something I'm I'm fairly proud of. If you uh you know if I go back and look at all the teams that I've had and the folks I've worked with, I have a lot of people uh who have PhDs in computer science who have uh you know taken the leap with me of say if I have a PhD in computer science and my, you know, my background at that front is top-notch. And I can, with that, understand the satisfaction that comes with a happy customer. And I understand that that means building solid pro- products that actually work. It's the best combination. That's how you really build the best stuff. You know, strong theory, strong algorithms, technology, married with whatever it takes to make the customer happy. Right? That's how you get the best stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. You, you've definitely been a student of the trade, so uh, you, you put a lot of time into educating yourself, educating others, uh, and now you've been on, on, on board with EMC for, what, about three years now? Three years, that's right. Okay, yeah. very cool. Well, hey, so, uh, Manavir, we, we like to do a, a segment here called, uh, well, it was formerly This Day in Tech History, but, but we decided we want to broaden it a little bit, and so we opened up to This Week in Tech History um, and we'd like to talk about kind of stuff that was going on at this point in time um, in the past. So it's actually turned out to be this day, but um, um, next week it may be something different. But on July 24th, 
2013, uh, Google put on a secret town hall meeting. Uh, no one knew what was going mm-hmm. on, uh, although someone or some people speculated that it had to do with TV. Um, so in that announcement, they announced Google Chromecast. So um, if you mm-hmm. haven't heard of it, it's the HDMI-based uh, set-top box, and it can also mm-hmm. be USB-based. Plugs into your TV. You can you know, throw whatever on your, your, your Google, uh, let's say call it Chrome or maybe Android phone, to the TV to watch. Right. You can also do things like Netflix, um, you know, Amazon, etc. So the question right. to you is, do you own uh, a Chromecast today? I actually do not. Uh, but I, I have wanted to, and it's just circumstance because I, you know, I, I over the last year I've spent ten months in Australia, and there was just too much going on. I am a bit of a geek that way. I have, I, I am an owner of Google Glass, so I'm one of those oh, really? people who does like to, yeah, yeah. So I am definitely one of these people who likes to tinker with stuff. Uh, but no, I don't actually have that. So oh, that so, is actually pretty cool. <laughs> so how do you? I mean, you probably. I'm not sure if you consume your television on Google Glass, but how do you uh, consume your entertainment, TV, whatever it is? Is it uh, like do you do you use a Roku? Do you just use mostly regular- on the phone? Uh, mostly on the phone. So I do not have uh, I do not have regular uh, you know satellite or cable TV at my house here in Seattle, and I just do everything on my phone. and And it's interesting these days, right? Because there's a bunch of websites where you can sign up to get, uh, uh, you know, various subsets of TV channels that you care about. I'm mostly into sports, so there's a lot of different ways of, of consuming sports, you know, the different leagues, etc. They all have, you know, the NFL, MLB, etc. They all have their subscription program, so you can you can watch uh, live games, you can go back and watch on demand. And, and really, I think the whole world of, hey, put on the TV and the movie that's on is on, you know, that's very old-fashioned, right? I remember my, one of my favorite movies is The Shining, you know, the Jack Nicholson oh, yeah. uh, horror movie. And, I, you know, I'm sure you guys have had this experience, but I've watched that movie in bits and pieces so many times because, you know, you're home at night, you're, you're flicking through channels, and you hey, wait a minute, The Shining is on. And it's somewhere in the middle of the movie, right? And you watch it for half an hour until you get, you know, you're done and you want to move on. And so you watch the same movie a hundred times, different snippets. But that, that just feels very, very old-fashioned to me now. I don't do that. And and I have the exact same experience. Yours may be The Shining, mine is Pitch Perfect, and uh, that's why I think we, we're kindred spirits. Is that we, uh, you know. So it sounds like you're a bit of a cord cutter, though. You, you've, uh, you're all subscription-based, no TV, just, you know, internet and no phone, TV, and you're no good to go. Yeah, uh, and no landline either. No landline either. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm cutting edge enough, I guess I should say that, when I was in Australia over the last year, I lived out in the boonies and there was, you know, the place I lived in, you couldn't actually get wires there. So I ran my, my life, my work, everything just over 4G on my phone. So I had one of these gizmos that would convert the 4G uh, connection on my phone into a wireless system for the house, for the data. And I did everything, you know, I did tele- telepresence, uh, video conferences, everything like that. Um, so... Wow. Well, what did you do about all the uh, all the animals and critters that can? Uh, you're living out in the, in, the, you know, in the bush, right? Yeah, the ones that can kill you because yeah, everything in, the in bush. Australia can so, kill you. Hide at night. Well, we had kangaroos in our backyard, and when I say backyard, I mean literally in the backyard within our property. We had kangaroos, and and they would come out at a particular times in the evening, and you would you know 
sit and watch them. No, so you hide inside the house at night. Golden rule of being in the country, keep the gate closed all the time. And we've had all kinds of stuff. We've had wild, wildlife, of course, but we've also had, you know, cows. So I remember one day I was doing a, I was doing a meeting and I look out the window in the patio and there's this huge cow in, uh, standing right there, like two feet from me, uh, looking at me. It was the neighbor's cow that had kind of come into our yard. So that's how it was. <laughs> I saw this crazy video on YouTube. It was kangaroos fighting in the street, and uh, it was it was actually pretty hilarious to watch. Did you ever actually see them doing like the kicking and punching that you always see? You always see no, the kangaroos with like the red boxing gloves on from the cartoon days. But did you ever see that yeah, going yeah, on yeah. in the backyard? No, nothing like that. No, nothing like that. Nothing like that. And in fact, there's one place we 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 went to. Um, I don't want to call it a zoo, but, uh, you know, up near Brisbane, uh, Steve Irwin, you know, the, f- the famous guy who passed away a few years ago, right, in an accident. Uh, there's a, the Australia Zoo, which was run by him and his family. They, uh, you know, it's a nice place, there's lots of crocodiles and things, but they have kangaroos out in a natural setting where they actually interact with people very well. So you can go, you can feed the kangaroos and all that kind of stuff. And my, my four-year-old daughter did that too, and wasn't scared or anything so yeah it's a very cool place i mean i know it's off topic but uh australia is a very nice place it, it actually it's it, it's it's keenly relevant to what we were talking about. It's one of the things that I thought was interesting when we when i when we did our pre interview um you really mentioned kind of the what you valued in the DNA of EMC uh, while you worked over in Australia. So, you know, what, what I mean, there's something obviously that let you work from Australia and still run an entire business unit. Yeah, I think it's because, and, and certainly in my uh, career experience, this is unique to EMC. I didn't see it at the other places that I worked at. But I think EMC really has this mental model that, um, you know, the nature of the world is everything is distributed. People sit in different locations, work from different locations, and diversity, right? Because if you look at the background of EMC, there's a lot of acquisition. Uh, whether it's VMware or it's Isilon, or, or for years and years, EMC has built its business and the solutions it provides to its customers by acquiring interesting technologies and companies. And in every case, when EMC has done that, it has not been, okay, let's integrate you into the Borg and assimilate you or anything like that. It's what is valued is the diversity, that keep doing things the way you do them, have been doing them, from where you've been doing them, and that's how we really create new opportunities and, and great products, right? And and that really percolates across EMC. I can't tell you how many times I encounter somebody at EMC for the, and I've worked with them for a year, and I've been on all kinds of calls and meetings and all of that with them, and then I finally meet them in, in person at a leadership event or something, and I say, oh, so that's you. Um, I actually had a situation two years ago where there was a person on my team, um, you know, and he was, he's an amazing developer and he, he, he's the kind of guy who builds toolkits, uh, above our products, you know, so that customers can easily use them. He does SDKs and all that kind of stuff. Really a very, very strong guy. And I spent a lot of time with him on, on WebExes and all that. And then he was in Seattle. He had come over for some kind of meeting with the team, and he was sitting there in the conference room, and there was a bunch of folks. And, uh, you know, I didn't recognize him or anything. I'd never actually seen him in person. And 
and 15 minutes into the meeting something happens and and there's a reference to to him and i say uh yeah hey it would be cool to actually have him in the meeting and he raises his hand and he says that's me and it was uh, <laughs> it was kind of amazing but that's kind very of very good yeah so, it sounds like you're having like fun i'm having a yeah. lot of fun i got to tell you it was a bit of a leap for me moving from my previous world into EMC. I thought of EMC as you know old fashioned place where they build hardware and all of that. And these days, when I recruit people to EMC, I tell them all the same thing, which is you know the leadership of EMC painted a certain picture for me of where EMC was going and how it was going to be different. And they lied to me because the truth is actually not that they misrepresented, they hoodwinked me. In fact, the reality is even more extreme than they told. And this company is even more uh, ready to pivot and go in a new direction than I had imagined. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be at EMC. It's a great place. That's great. Yeah, I mean, you came from you know fifteen plus years at uh, at Microsoft and working on some some interesting projects. And yeah, to your yeah. point, you know, I think all of our customers and EMC customers think that uh, I shouldn't say all. Generally speaking, people think that EMC is a hardware company. And, and much to your point, um, and what you've learned is that uh, we are quite a large and formidable force in terms of our software development and what we are. Um, providing our customers with so definitely changing the game uh changing our our pedigree if you will uh coming to come into market with some some really really cool cool products so uh we're going to talk about yeah. some of those today yeah great so you know one of the things we were really curious about is obviously you spent a good i mean the in general the federation spends a good amount of time talking about uh you know, Azure or Azure or however you want to pronounce it. And there's an official way and everybody yeah. else's way. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, they, there's there's things that you set in motion, you know, three years ago plus as a team when you were leading, uh, you know, that team. Do you Is that still, uh, are those things all executed on by now? Are they still going in the same direction that you set? Um, are, you know, how are things going from your perspective as an outsider now to kind of see where your baby has gone? Yeah, I, I, it was sort of uh, my baby, our baby. Back in the day, when we started, it wasn't even called Azure. It was called Red Dog. And then we had to uh, come up with a you know a proper name for it, if you will. I think, uh, largely speaking, uh, it is going in that direction that, that we set. Um, it's not surprising because I think if you look at um, computing in general, it is it is pivoting in that direction, which is basically uh, things don't look exactly like the old world. However, scale really matters. And so can I build and write my applications in such a way that I can really leverage scale? Uh, so I think that's the direction that Azure has gone in. I think we have very much a, a platform or operating system philosophy to this thing, which is that it shouldn't be just about you know, the three or four or five different services that are sort of slapped together and go have at it, but really a comprehensive set of things for an application developer to use. You know, so, so my background is in programming languages um, and operating systems. Like many of the people uh, who, who started and worked in Azure with me, and, so, you know, obviously at Microsoft, we had the whole .NET stack and that programming model. So the philosophy we always had was more of a, programming model, which is 
how do I create a platform with all the different primitives and libraries and and capabilities so that somebody writing an application can just focus on their business last, right? And whether you do Java or .NET, you get this whole runtime and libraries and things to do that. And the way we saw the cloud was we said it's the same concept, but these libraries and primitives are not a piece of code that you attach to your app on one server, but they're actually services that run over thousands of servers with APIs that you can just talk to and consume, right? And uh, that's sort of been the philosophy of Azure from the beginning, and I think it fit Microsoft well because it is a platform company. And I think I, I see that I see that approach. I see the gamut of offerings uh, that they have and other folks in that domain have now, and they just get richer all the time. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm actually very, uh, very excited about how all that has gone, even though I'm not a part of it anymore. Yeah. And and so uh, you know, in the same vein, as you come over to EMC, you've been here roughly three years. Um, there was you were obviously yeah. brought over to do some things, and there's probably a general framework around it. But you have a you have a lot of things in your purview today. It, are you still doing what you were originally kind of enticed to come over to do, or has it shifted? Has it just gotten broader? Has it you know done 180 in a whole different direction? Where are you at versus where you came over? It's just gone broader. I'm absolutely doing what I came here to do. Um, and, uh, you know, at a high level, I would just say people equate EMC with storage. And many of the products that I mentioned um, when we talked earlier uh, are about storage. But what I came here to do and what my team is working on uh, these days extends well beyond storage. Uh, because really, the reason I came to EMC was not, uh, I would put it this way. So I, you know, I built a whole stack for the data center. Uh, in my in my previous life, um, and the reason I came to EMC was because uh, I thought that the other folks were taking a very compute centric view of the world, where you figure out how to do your compute and storage is sort of a subroutine and it just happens. Uh, but uh, I thought the right answer really for the future is a storage centric view of the world, where everything begins with the data, and then you build your stack around the data. And so that's sort of the mission that they're on. And certainly we have products that are exclusively storage and, and certainly customers find those useful. But the mission we're on is really to provide our customers a much broader and larger stack of which storage is a very important piece and which is all in some sense grounded in storage. So I'll give you my, my favorite example of this, right? There's this whole field of big data, right? And everybody talks about big data all the time and Hadoop and and you got your Cloudera and your Hortonworks and Apache Hadoop and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it comes with some storage, right? It's DFS. And if you look at the way things started and evolved, HDFS storage was just based on Google GFS. Um, and so it was just re-implemented, not much uh, innovation or interest there, a lot of focus on the compute stack and, you know, the different kinds of, compute capabilities on top, starting from MapReduce and then going to more sort of in-memory stuff, and now you've got Spark and all this kind of stuff. And the storage is gradually getting commoditized, and there's five different ways of doing HDFS, and, you know, we'll make it more efficient. We'll maybe do some erasure coding and all of that. But it's a very compute-centric view. And my point is, hey, the name of this thing is big data, not big compute. And there's a reason for that. Because it is actually all about the data. How do you keep so much data? How do you ingest that much data? 
How can you be intelligent about processing the data on the way in? How can you identify the right data sets for the different application that you're working on? How do you get insight out of the data so that people who have this data in their business can actually derive value from it? So, so that's kind of my philosophy uh, to the whole thing, that the world ought to be storage-centric, and you know that's the mission we're on. And so I can take pretty much everything that my team is working on, both the current products and the new projects we're working on, and explain it to you in that fashion, that it's all about building up an entire stack for a customer that is based on a storage-centric view of the world. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So, so let's kind of dig into some of the specifically some of the things that uh, that you're working on. So, um, yeah. you know, we talked we talked about going into object stores, right? So, um, yeah. Our, talk, talk to me a little bit about first of all object stores um, in general and where you see the the market leaning towards, um, and then also what EMC is doing around object storage. Right. So the object. Uh Market in general, I would say, you know, it's, it's growing uh, dramatically. And I think the cadre on it by, by any measure is very high, 30%, north of 30%. There's a big opportunity there. I think the reason why object storage is now getting traction is, I think originally it took a while for object storage to get traction because people thought of it in terms of, hey, there's this REST API and it's a different way of accessing the storage and I have to change all my applications and all of that. But I think object storage should really be thought of in terms of the the new capability that it brings, which is, you know, number one, um, geo-distributed so that I can put my data anywhere regardless of where my data center is. And it comes with an active-active model so that for my applications, I can access my data from anywhere. So a lot of times you hear people talking about object storage being the target for modern applications. And the reason is because Typically, when you think modern applications, you think mobile, web, social. And these are the kinds of applications that people are running on their phones. They're going on planes. They're traveling. And, you know, when you run an application and it talks to storage, you may be anywhere in the world. And you want to connect to the closest place you can connect to and still be able to use your application and access the data and update the data or upload your photos or what have you. So I think that geo-nature and geo-distributed nature of object is crucial. The second thing that distinguishes object uh, that is leading to its popularity is scale. So, you know, we I always give the example, the analogy of cameras. Uh, I can have, uh, you know, a built-in camera on my phone that has a very high megapixel count, but if I don't have a good lens, uh, um, you know, attached to that, it doesn't matter, right? I'm not going to get great photos. And in the storage world, it's, uh, that applies to scale. I can build you a system that I can say, okay, it can hold 50 terabytes of data, and it sounds very scale. Okay, but how many different names things can I have in my namespace? Am I limited to having 50,000 files in a directory? Or can I actually have a flat namespace with a billion different files or objects in the namespace? Right? So it's that kind of scale that object uh, embodies. If you really build a proper object system, you'll have no scale limits on namespaces and things like that. And again, what does that mean? For modern applications, et cetera, it's very easy to develop applications quickly because you don't stop and think about that, right? So sometimes you hear people say, hey, the beauty of object is you just consume by API. I mean, what does that mean? Everything's got an API, right? NFS has got an API. CIS has got an API. Uh, the point of saying you just consume the API is 
all the kinds of math and design work, etc., you used to do in the applications when you use something like NFS because you think about how you sort of work around the, the limitations of the storage paradigm underneath, go away. You don't want that. You want to just write your application and read and write data and the system below is scalable that it just uh, takes care of it, right? So I think that's the other thing uh, that comes with object, which is the scale. And I think these two things have really made the object uh, market sort of take off. What I see today with the customers we have, with the customers I talk to, is that most of my conversations start at the double-digit petabyte. There's very few people I'm talking to who are, who are looking for storage at smaller scale than that. And we have numerous customers who are in the hundreds of petabytes. And my largest customer today is actually running, you know, that's a single customer I have that has a, uh, an exabyte uh, just for that customer of, of uh, my product. So definitely the scale. And I think that is being driven by the fact that more and more, whether you're, like I would, I would break it down into, you know, three, three cases, enterprises, service providers, and the web 100 style folks, right? I think for, for enterprises, they're finding that they have more and more data now that they're willing to keep around. You know, it used to be the dichotomy of either this really expensive storage under my fan, or otherwise I'll shove it to, to a tape archive. And the thing in the middle was really missing, right? Because tape archive is cheap, but very hard to retrieve. And the fan stuff is very expensive. So Object has really opened up this opportunity for repository. I think service providers, they're all in their own domains trying to compete with the the Amazons and Microsofts of the world, and for them it's like an arms race model where it gives me this object technology so that I can deploy it for myself and catch up with these other guys, um, you know, in my own domain and business model. And then the Web 100, you know, we, we have customers who are very, very large in the web, who have very large pools of, of storage, and they want to really focus on their energy and the business logic for the thing that makes their... their their company unique rather than, you know, how to stand up and run storage. So from all these factors, I see the object market really growing. There's a lot of people in this space, traditional vendors, of course, but a lot of startups, uh, you know, there's a lot of activity in this space, and I think everybody sees the opportunity here. And do you see the tipping point of object adoption? I mean, you, right, people had object before. It's always kind of existed. We even, yeah. I mean, we had it f- for so long with Atmos that I, I don't even, yeah. I may not even yeah. have had a career when object started. But do you really feel like the tipping point might have been Amazon with S3 and the ability to consume object so easy and kind of in a piece-by-piece basis? I think, I think, I think uh, S3 has had a big part to do with it, certainly. I think in any summary I would do, I would say that would be part of the tipping point. But I would say the other part of the tipping point is that in the beginning, you know, the first wave of object systems were actually built and priced very much like traditional file systems. And so the because of that, customers were only seeing the differentiated value of object in terms of I can run my mobile app or I can write modern applications. And so traction was slow because for any customer you would talk to, it would be about, okay, but i got to go find the app for this thing. Otherwise, I don't want to put it in. And I think in that direction, the tipping point was really when the next wave of object products came in, which by their nature were much cheaper 
uh, and in different form factors. Like I'll just give you software, and you can run it on commodity hardware. And I think that opened eyes for the customer to the idea that you know, if I really got 500 petabytes of data that I care about, adopting an object platform gives me a much cheaper, cost-effective way to do this. And I think that's really driven a lot of adoption of objects. Uh, so, so do I you think, think you know the combination of those things? Yeah. So, so Manavir, you know, a majority of our customers today are in the platform two world, right? So, IDC platform yeah. two, platform three. Um, where do you see object fitting? Uh, is it is it a is it and, a good and, use and, case potentially for two, or is platform yes. three a majority of the the workloads? No, Brent, it's a great use case for two, and that's uh, thank you for putting it in those terms because um, I'll take what I. I just said and actually expressed it that way. I think initially adoption of object was slow in especially enterprises because it was the use cases that were identified for object were all platform three type stuff, which is the object store will, will be the tier one storage for a new class of application. But those new applications have to be written and that takes time and and nobody wants to provision capacity before they have it. And I think the shift has been now people realize that object is a great tier two storage system for everything you've got. I like so, it. Right? And so the way I think about it, right? So people ask me, you know, I've been asked this question before that, hey, what's the scope of your ambition for all the object portfolio that you have? What's your sort of uh, vision? And my vision is expressed in two words, which is store everything. I, I mean, I'm very modest. I have very low ambition. I just want everybody's data. That's all. Right? <laughs> I'm not asking for a lot. And my yeah. point is, I have a simple model, okay? With, with my object system, I can be the tier two storage for everything you've got. And now it's about having the right gateways and pathways so that for some applications where something else is the tier one store, it's seamless and easy to push that data onto me as a tier two store. And then I have a class of applications for which my system is capable of being the tier one store. And the journey that we're on with object is to gradually move the needle more and more so that more and more of the workloads can consume object as the tier one store. The needle will never move all the way uh, because you know, you'll always have high performance workloads, things where latency really matters, et cetera, et cetera. But the needle will keep moving, right? So I'm everybody's tier two store, and, and some applications tier one store, and that needle will keep moving. But either way, all your data comes to me, and that's 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 kind of where I'm heading. So I definitely think it applies to platform two. All you your know, data, thing, all uh, your data uh, yeah. belong. All your data are belong to me. That's what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not ambitious at all, right? It's a very simple, modest goal. I just want everybody's data. And I don't think that's asking for a lot. You got but, me excited. Uh, I didn't mean to cut but, you off there. I don't know if you can keep track of what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's fine. I, so I was just going to give you, you know, uh, one platform to example of this thing that I was in New York City earlier this week uh, doing the whole round of customers. And, it, you know, there's nothing like spending time with customers because you, you discover all kinds of new things that people want to do that you hadn't contemplated before. So So I'll give you an example of a, of a platform to use case for object that, that one doesn't think of naturally, which is, so here's a customer, they've got all these platform to applications that are in silos in different data centers. 
and each of these applications has got storage system locally in its data center and they're doing their processing and they care about latency and all of that stuff and that's great okay and these storage systems they're traditional so yes they replicate data across data centers for disaster recovery but they're what you would call active passive so there's a primary data center that's the only place from which you can actually access the data and yeah you can fail over if there's a disaster right so they have like a dozen different applications that have this data and it's in a dozen di- different data centers and the data pool is fairly large and you know what 80% of the files that these different applications are creating and accessing are actually exactly the same content i mean literally the same files and so what they want to do is hey why do i have 12 copies of this data can't i just have one copy of the data and everybody access it but they're in 12 different data centers and they all want to access the data so how do you solve that problem you give them an object storage system which is active active the data goes into a repository it's automatically distributed by algorithmics across the different data centers and any of the applications in any data center can just read or write that data at any time it's platform to applications the applications haven't changed the applications are not have not magically become mobile or anything like that the same application but it's that active active geo nature of the object storage that allows them to consolidate multiple copies of the same data into a single distributed copy right so it's really content repository you know active archive whatever you call it right there's a real way opportunity for businesses to consolidate their data old data new data traditional apps or otherwise on a system that can be accessed from anywhere so and and yeah. so and and we love that's that's actually one of my favorite things about object i'd say you know in my job object's one of the things that i evangelize the most um yeah. and you know that's that's one of the great things you know that i'm trying to get people to do obviously you know quickly i know there's a bit of a, a overlap between isilon and ecs um you know is there a yeah. is there a is there a two line sentence you could say in an elevator that would explain where one ends and where one begins or best of both worlds yeah absolutely and you know i the the larger team that i'm part of emerging technologies division does isilon and you you will find very few people in the world who are bigger fans of isilon than, than i am and that's actually one of the reasons ironically that i came to emc and i sit in the same building with the isilon team so i'm a huge fan of isilon that right? and the way i the the simple way i would explain it is you know storage goes from uh you know server scale to rack scale to data center scale to to geo scale and isilon is a great product at data center scale right so Isilon doesn't do geo it doesn't do active active uh technology but within data center scale it really rocks right and it's it's the best scale out file system you're going to find so you want to do snb you want to do sips you want to do nfs and you want to do it at high scale in a in a scale out kind of model that's isilon right ecs is sort of the next level uh beyond that way it says okay at geo scale i can spread across data centers of course i can run a data center scale just like isilon can run at rack scale and and so on you can always sort of run smaller footprints of things but ecs really where it takes it is it says i'm um, geo scale put me in two or three data centers 
You'll get really good access across sites. You'll get really good replication. It's the most efficient way to replicate and store your data. And it's just for scale, right? So Isomaran, at the end of the day, is a file system. And all the semantics and, and the architecture and the way you think of your applications and how many files you put in a directory and how you work the directory structure and all of that, that's sort of the standard traditional model. ECS is sort of an object system, so it's a flat namespace. You put billions of objects in, in a you know in a single directory, and it doesn't matter. Uh, but um, the beautiful thing is, so I would say there are very distinct swim lanes for the two things. Isilon is your your data center scale thing, and you put it as a very performant filer for your file based application. ECS is a is meant for larger scale and for geo kind of scenarios where you put it in multiple data centers and its scale characteristics are, are quite different. But the beautiful thing is that because we work on these products together, we can find clever and intelligent ways to really build the right solution for the customer. So we're coming up with this uh, technology jointly between Isilon and ECS next quarter, which is called Isilon Cloud Pools, where basically you put an Isilon under your application as your tier one store, and then you put ECS also in your environment, in your data centers, and connect them via Isilon cloud pools, and Isilon automatically tiers the data down to the ECS. So Isilon does the, the initial reads and writes, and you get very good performance, and Isilon keeps a lot of the metadata and the stubs, if you will, for the, for the files that are being created but it's shipping the bulk of the actual storage down to the ECS, which is you know, more scalable and, and uh, more cost-effective when you spread it across data centers, but nothing changed for the application because you're just uh, reading and writing through the Isilon, right? So it's a very nice two-tier model. So one's file, one's object. Uh, you know, file is about deeper semantics, richer semantics, richer capabilities better performance, more oriented towards traditional applications that are housed in a single data center. ECS is essentially object, so its strengths are about multi-site modern applications, cheaper archiving because it's a more cost-effective thing that you can spread across multiple sites, um, and it's about scale. And hey, by the way, you can actually connect these two things in a very seamless way so you get the best of both ones. Yeah, I'm a, I'm really looking forward to cloud pools. I think it's going to have a lot of fun things to do. So yeah, yeah. Um, while we were while we were researching you, you know, uh, we, you yeah. know as a subject, uh, Brent and I watched uh, numerous videos. We kind of like we're kind of like the Peyton Manning of podcasting. You know, we just we're students like of it. tape, and so we watched a yeah, bunch yeah. of videos. We watched you on Silicon yeah. Angle, and uh, I yeah. have a, I have one very serious question for you: Who's yeah. a better interview, us or Silicon Angle? Oh, definitely you. Yes. Absolutely you. Yes. That's absolutely the right you. answer. You until can come back on. Next time I do Silicon Angle. Sorry. Yeah, actually, no, the next no, no. time you're on Silicon Angle, they have a like they have two or three more listeners than we do. I want to make sure you let them know that if they need somebody to help them out and kind of give them some new ways to look at things, yeah. to give the hot aisle a yeah. call. So, I, will, I will certainly do that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, another question I had for you, I was uh, just reading this week, I, I was reading about the golf, and uh, there was, a, there was a, a player who, in the middle of his round, uh, got frustrated with his caddy because his caddy was giving him bad advice. Yeah, Robert Allenby. Yeah, and so they got, they, they, they got to bickering, 
And uh, he basically fires his caddy kind of halfway through the round. At the end of the round, he's like, okay, you really are for real fired. And a guy walks out from the crowd and says, I'm your new caddy. Yeah. I thought, you know, I thought I that was a great like thing. Or something, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. If there was any guy, if there's any player in the world, uh, maybe I would just say modern player, they have to still have a career right now, that you could get them to fire their caddy and you could be their caddy for the next three months. Who would that be? Who would that player be? And why are you, why are you a fan of theirs? Oh, it would be Tiger. That's easy. I, I would love to be a caddy for Tiger Woods. Yeah, um, you think he could fix his I've, back, or you could fix his, uh, you know, his mental game he's got going on? No, no, no. I couldn't fix that. Only he can fix that. Uh, no, but I, I would want to be his caddy for a selfish reason because you know I've I've played golf for a while, and and the quest I've always been on with golf is I want to hit the ball further, and I want to hit the ball. Everybody wants to maximize what they can do. And the reason why I play golf, you know, it's a solo sport, if you will, and because you're always challenging yourself. And I don't want to hit the ball as far as Tiger Woods, but the day I feel like today I hit the ball as far as my body would humanly make possible, I'd be satisfied. And the reason I'd want to be his carry is because watching him swing all the time at close range, I would really try to understand. How is he maximizing what he's done in his body? And it's just technique, right? And so that's why I would want to be his caddy. Yeah. Sure. So, so speaking of of maximizing, let's get back into the weeds. Um, yeah. yeah. We, you know, we talked. We, we, we want to talk about Project Caspian, right? I mean, it was yeah. it was released at, at EMC World, kind of ish. Chad Sackick has blogged yeah. about it. He's done a demo of yeah. it. Um, in my opinion. Yeah. It is pretty cool, and it really is is going to enable us to do some, you know, to maximize our effectiveness. So, tell us first of all, uh, you know, what is Project Caspian, and uh, what is it yeah. going to help people do to kind of maximize what they're doing in in IT today? Yeah, so I think uh, Caspian is really an extension of the work we've done on storage, and and if you recall, a few minutes ago, I was talking about how. Uh, the mission we're on extends well beyond storage, right? So I would put it to you this way, that um, the reason why the object market is really sort of uh, growing now and going forward is because there's there's a whole community now, right? There's a lot of work going on. There's, there's some people who are open source. There's some people who are proprietary startups, uh, big vendors. But basically, storage over time is getting democratized, right, where the barrier to entry is lower and lots of people can partake in play. Well, if you look at the computing world in general, I would say, uh, this is happening across the board because there's a number of people, uh, you know, we took my example, but there's a lot of people who cut their teeth at the big companies building cloud technologies and cloud stacks, right? And they all sort of moved on to the next phase of their career and said, hey, you know what? This can be done outside of that locked world. And so you saw all these initiatives start up for these sort of open source based computing stacks. I think Hadoop was the first big example, you know, the whole uh, big data stack with Apache Hadoop, um, really based on GFS and MapReduce, and then it's, it's evolved uh, from there. OpenStack, sort of the next big one, which is, you know, for VM based general uh, computing. How can I stand up an environment? 
and I think then this has progressed to, to you know to more and more kinds of uh, technologies over time. Now you see what are we seeing in the last year? We're seeing this whole wave based on containers as opposed to VMs, where it started with Docker, CoreOS, then Google put out Kubernetes, and there's Bezos, and you know, uh, of course we in our federation have Cloud Foundry, and you have a whole bunch of uh, technologies that are in, in that third area now of container-based computing. And just by the way, for folks on the podcast who don't know, here in my team, we are huge fans of containers. Our ECS object storage system from the day we wrote the first kind of code was entirely based on Docker. Uh, all of the ECS code runs in Docker containers. Even the appliances that we ship, the hardware, you get a rack and you plug it in. What's actually happening on every server is there's Linux operating system, and ECS is a variety of containers on Docker uh, running on those Docker. Right? So we better Docker back when it was open. So we're big fans of that. So you see these movements now where people are finding uh, and beginning to adopt alternative computing stacks that are basically all born in open source, right? And, of course, every computing stack has a storage problem to solve. And some of these computing stacks come with, uh, come with built-in storage, like, uh, you know, the Hadoop stack comes with Apache HDFS, and OpenStack comes with uh, Ceph and Swift or Block and Object. Um, but the problem is, when I go and talk to my customers, let's take OpenStack as an example. Uh, over the last year, you know, I would say across all the customers I've talked to, Almost everyone says to me, OpenStack, I'm looking at OpenStack, I'm playing with OpenStack, I've got an environment, I've deployed something, I'm playing with it, I'm testing it. And then I say, okay, and do you have it in production? And almost always the answer is no. And the reason is because I know this better than most people at EMC, that is actually my background, and I'm from research. And what happens is when these things start up, uh, they're based on good ideas, but there's a lot of focus on racing to implement the good idea. And so a lot of times the stuff that you get is more prototype quality and product quality. And it sounds great, right? And the buzz picks up and you get VC investment and you get a community and everybody's racing and adding new modules and things and it sounds great, but you incur a very large technical debt because what you did is you built a lot of prototype code. And so people, for instance, trying to deploy OpenStack in production are really wrangling with it. And it's a very labor-intensive uh, manual process and how do you do upgrade and a lot of things don't work, right? So the problem we set out to solve with Project Caspian was, here's what I'm going to do for my customer. I'm going to say, you want to go with OpenStack? You want to adopt OpenStack? opposed to stacks like VMware that I care about my, my federation beliefs in, regardless of that, I will give you a way to treat these things as products and operate them in a turnkey fashion. So you've always thought about EMC, of EMC as this appliance company that gives you um, storage based on hardware. You know what? That's just because I know how to source hardware. So I'm going to give you turnkey solution for open source infrastructure soup to now, where I ship you the hardware, I'll have all the open source stuff pre-deployed uh, with a nice UI and everything so that you can just consume all the services, 
and I've done the heavy lifting to make all these components more robust, to handle their life cycle, how do I do upgrade, how do I do OS patches, all of that. And I'm doing this with a And if there's any problem with any of this stack, each call one is on an EMC. And we are EMC, and in that sense, we haven't changed. If you have a problem at 2 in the morning on a Sunday, you know, we'll have 10 engineers on the phone, and if there's a part that's broken, even if it's not ours, we have a truck there three hours later with a new part place, right? So that's the idea, that basically, okay, here's the way. It's open source infrastructure. It's not an application. It's platform three. Everybody wants to go there. How do you go there, right? So another way, if I can take a second to pop up a level, you know, when I, when I talk to CTOs and CIOs at our customers, uh, what I always say to them is, you're at point A, where you have your data centers the way they look today, and you want to be at point B, where you see all this stuff from Amazon, Microsoft, etc. You want scale, you want cheap, you want platform three, agile, all this kind of stuff. How do you get from A to B? I, as EMC, want to be the person who takes you there in a responsible and rational manner. Right, so that you don't compromise your business, but yet you move, and you can move fast enough. And for some parts of the stack, you move faster, and for some parts of the stack, you move slow. Right. So in the within the umbrella of that overall mission that I have for my customer, it's a very natural thing for me to say that one of the things you need to do to evolve from A to B is the parts of your infrastructure you really want to adopt these open source infrastructures whether it's the Hadoop for the big data or it's OpenStack to, to spin up VM farms for your dev and test in different scenarios or whether it's container-based uh, architectures for new cloud things you're doing. And I want to be the person who gives you this turnkey solutions for this stuff. So that's what casting is about. It's about SuperNuts uh, appliance, hardware and software, hardware optimized for the application workload, software, basically the entire stack, from the storage, which is actually the hardest problem for most of these stacks. And you know what? I've got the best storage already. And because my storage is built with software and not hardware, I can put it on anything. And so I can put it into these appliances as well, right? I got my software. I've got the application stack, which is OpenStack or Hadoop or what have you. And I put UIs, I've done monitoring and reporting, all the things you know, you need to operate this stuff in a reasonable manner on a daily basis that we take for granted in the storage world today. All that's baked in and built in and you just plug the thing in and you go, right? In that sense, it's like a VMAX. You plug in and you go. But you've got all this modern technology uh, and cost savings and all that kind of stuff. So that's really um, what Caspin is after. And uh, as you said, we, we, we did a bit of a sneak peek at EMC world and now we've blogged about it a little bit. Uh, we're excited. We're actually in, in three final stages for the first incarnation of this thing where we really focused on OpenStack, making it possible for people to have robust uh, OpenStack environments, and then just training from there. And it's just uh, yeah. one <clears throat> one service after another. And it's just, and you can do all of these with the same infrastructure, right? So you don't have to think sure. of silos that, hey, let me go buy these 10 racks to stand up OpenStack VMs and those 10 racks to do Mahadoop. And, those can you actually do something else. And it's just different services you can view uh, from the same infrastructure. So that's good. Cool.
Yeah, awesome. So yeah, very good. So we are we're coming up on an hour here, um, which is typically yeah. the amount of time that we do a podcast. We, we've gotten in some really cool content. Uh, I'd like to take this just a little bit longer um, because we've got a, just another topic to, to cover. And briefly, if you could, um, you know, you talked about using open source, right? So we're using Docker today. Yeah. We're we're pushing with Caspian towards uh, towards OpenStack, towards HDFS. Uh, and enabling our customers to to use those technologies in a in an easier and more enterprise uh, quality fashion. Um, so so that said, why why is EMC moving towards open source, um, either utilizing it in our technology or developing our own, and for that matter, making stuff kind of free and frictionless, right? So call it freeware, if you will. Why why are why are right. we doing this? Right. And I think, obviously, there's an exemplar of that because at EMC World, we announced that we've open-sourced the Viper controller uh, under the project uh, project named Copperhead, right? So we've we've sort of put our money where our mouth is, if you will, and already done that with with a strategic product, really, um, that I do on my team. Um, and I would also say that that's, that's not a one-off. That was very much intended to be just beginning of a path for EMC, right? So I think your question is very relevant. Why would we do this? So I think there's a few reasons. Firstly, I think the overall responsibility to the customer is innovation we can give them. And I think no matter how many engineers we hire in-house at EMC and how worthwhile they are and all of that, if we do things in open source and the larger community is able to jump in and contribute, you will get more rapid. And that translates to more rapid innovation in the product cycle for customers. So I think that's uh, that's reason number one why ENC would go there. Reason number two is if you if you look at it, what's basically happening is uh, computing is going through a shift, and people are trying to get to the new data center paradigm, if you will. And because of that, there's a lot of things springing up that basically need standards, right? Because um, everybody says, hey, let's do containers. But if there's 20 different ways of doing containers, 20 different APIs for how to consume container infrastructure, then it's going to slow everything down, right? And so there needs to be some standards. I don't mean standards in the traditional sense where as a committee and you spend 20 years formalizing some protocol. But I mean that things need to be open and community-based so that through consensus, the community can gravitate towards certain things, and then everybody sort of follows that model, right? A great example in the container world is, you know, we had Docker with a API for how to consume Linux containers, and then with CoreOS, they had that thing Rocket that they were working on, which is different. Be one of the things okay, you know, I could go off and do Rocket, but why? Let's uh, let's just agree to use the Docker format, right? And and everybody's got plenty of other stuff to do. So I think uh, for EMC, a lot of what we do, a lot of what my team does, for instance, is very much in that domain where it would be great if there were standards. Like we do a lot of management stuff. Viper controller is all about storage automation. And how do I talk to different arrays and devices and program them? And how do I expose this? To, to customers and service providers and the like so that they can integrate this automation with the rest of their automation. And if I build these products as EMC, am I, 
and I am off on my own island where I've got my proprietary stuff with its own APIs and all of that, it will make it much harder for customers to adopt my technology. Uh, I had an example of a really big bank, uh, you know, out of New York, where they had worked with Viper Controller for a while and they were happy with it, and now they they were ready to make a de facto only automation platform for all of their stuff, and that got them naturally to the point that hey, wait a minute, if that's the bet that I'm taking, then how do I know I'm not off an island, right? So I think that the standard part is important, and then the third part is. You know, when you're in a heterogeneous world, then things have to be cooperative, right? So so what I mean by that is if I take the world of storage, there's many different vendors, and they all build great storage systems. And ENC is not the only vendor that builds storage. There's Dell, Hitachi, NetApp, IBM, you know, you name it. I mean, these people, yes, of course, we compete with them, but as an intellectual, as somebody in this industry, I recognize that they build really good stuff. Uh, even if my stuff's better, and customers use them and need to use them and have them in house today and will have them tomorrow, right? So the world is heterogeneous, and the products that I'm doing at EMC, part of their value is that they operate in heterogeneous environments. So now if you think about heterogeneous environments, and I produce a piece of software for my customer that says, hey, this piece of EMC software is going to manage all of your heterogeneous stuff, then it raises the simple question of how, how does the customer know, how does the other vendor know that I'm playing fair? That in my proprietary code that nobody else can see, I haven't cheated, I haven't done special things for EMC gear, I haven't chosen where to place pools and how to enable you know, caching, etc. that makes my storage look better than others. Right? Or consider another facet of this. I'm a customer. I've got a new RFP. I want to bring in new equipment. I've adopted Viper Controller as a standard in my business. I open an RFP. You know, another vendor has a product that seems to fit the bill. And now the question comes up, okay, are you integrated and certified or what have you with this Viper Controller thing so that I can use Viper Controller to automate provisioning on you? And if, if my stuff is proprietary, then the only people who can actually do that is EMC. And that's not appropriate, fair, scalable, et cetera, right? So I think uh, for those reasons, there's a lot of incentive to say this thing should be open source, that it's open to inspection. Everybody can see the code, satisfy themselves that the code is right, that it's being fair, all of that, and people can contribute so that they can build device drivers for their own devices and new capability, what have you, right? So, so do think, we have a, do we have an example of a vendor yet that has uh, taken Copper HD in and begun to uh, build integrations for their product? We have vendors that are actually already working on it, um, Brian. We don't have anybody yet that has visibly made the contribution back, and the reason for that is because if you just look at the timeline, we announced the open sourcing in May. We actually put everything out on, on GitHub for the first time in June, and it was in read-only mode because we were waiting for a baseline of an upcoming release of Viper Controller, which was 2.3. And then it's only a week ago that we, we got done with the baseline of Viper Controller 2.3, which becomes sort of the first version in the version history of Copperhead that that we can take contributions back on, right? So it was actually only been a few days in the model where 
uh, contributions are even uh, feasible uh, from people. But we have we have vendors already working on on stuff, and we have Intel actually. They've got a team of developers who've been working for a little bit now, and they are actually very focused on you know the the API standards part. So they're taking uh, some of the stuff we've done in Copperhead and they're converting it into API and SDK so that other vendors can uh, can contribute more easily and you know make changes. So so it's early days for that yet, but suffice it to say that. You know, for this effort, rather than tracking things like revenue, et cetera, that you might expect in the business, we we have a different set of metrics that we're tracking that are all actually based on who's contributing, why, how, and it's really about it's about that. You know, it's it's not even you know you might imagine for a commercial company like EMC, you know, you might imagine that the metric we would care about is hey, it's available for free download, so let's see how many people downloaded it. And out of that, how many people then called us and said, "I like it. Can I buy it?" We're actually not even tracking that because that is not our interest in this. We got a sales force; they know how to sell stuff, right? Our interest is really: is the community picking up? Is there contribution? You know, is that uh, is that the kind of stuff that's actually happening? And, and so, that's actually uh, yeah, that's actually one of the great things that we learned from another guest. Um, Really quick, is Josh is Josh Bernstein in your org, or is he in the the overall ATD, ETD org? I forget. He's my peer. He's an overall ETD org. Obviously, okay. I work with him very, very closely. Gotcha. And I think uh, I, it would be fair for me to say that the, that one of the big reasons he came to, to EMC and ETD was because of the stuff that my team is working on that he's particularly excited about. But yeah, I work very closely with him. I and, thought you were going to say he was going to really be excited to move. I thought you were going to say he's going to be excited to move to Australia. That you're going to give him the opportunity to go, go hang out with dingoes or something, you know, and just kind of. If he wants to do that, he can do that. <laughs> I think he would be. I, I think he'd be equally effective from there. He might have longer flights to go to some, some, some customer meetings and things. But yeah, he would love it there. Sure. Well, unfortunately, we've run long. This is usually what happens when you yeah. have great guests is all these gems just keep falling out and you just want to grab them all. Uh, but we do want to be respectful of time. What it means is uh, we get to probably bring you back at some point. If you're, you know, again, <laughs> you know, I, I know we're, we're a little tougher on people than, say, SiliconANGLE. We ask the hard questions, yeah. but uh, we get yeah. good results out of it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I appreciate you having me on. I especially appreciate it for folks who listen to the podcast for taking the time to do that. And it's a great opportunity for me and the team to share what we're working on. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being here. So, uh, you know, I, we looked on Twitter. Uh, I see you're, you're a very digital person, but I didn't see you on Twitter. Are you out there and I just couldn't find it? I'm very bad on social media. I got to okay. tell you, Brian, I, I, I never go to Facebook or Twitter or any of that. But I do have 26 Facebook accounts that I've almost never used. And um, uh, just to end this, I'll, 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 I'll give you a little homework exercise to figure, figure out why that might be. The number 26 actually matters. There's, there's a particular thing in the world of which there are exactly 26. And I'll let you figure out what that is. But I basically just needed a whole bunch of Facebook accounts because back in the day, there's this very popular game called Farmville. Right, and everybody in my family, my my wife, my in-laws, everybody was always growing their farm stuff on Farmville, off a plane, on a plane, whatever. And you know, I'm a winner. I had to catch up and beat them, and I was way behind. So how do you catch up on Farmville? You get a bigger farm, 
how do you get a bigger farm? You have to have enough neighbors uh, to help you so you can get a bigger farm. How do you get enough neighbors? You've got to have enough Facebook friends. But I don't actually use Facebook, so I don't have any Facebook friends. So I had to create some Facebook friends for myself. And so that's why I did <laughs> That's that's great. That's, that's, or something. That's, that's awesome. So when you don't have friends, you can yeah. just make them. And uh, if that's I could, the, if yeah, I could make my own neighbors in the real world, I would love it. Um, <laughs> so you know, we we are going to say goodbye uh, again. Uh, yeah. Monavir Das, uh, uh, you know, part ASD, ETD, all those great things. We really appreciate having you on. Um, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, we really we'd love to hear some feedback from you. It's time for you to come out of the weed work. Uh, you know, get come, woodwork and the weeds, both of those, and and get social with us. Right. So if you're an EMC or a peer or whatever it may be, email, text, call, uh, you know, tweet. Don't care. Get some feedback out there to us, positive or negative. We may ignore you, but get it to us. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if you have suggestions, if you have guest suggestions, if you have questions of guests that you think are coming up, you know, any of those kind of things. If you have questions about business units, any technologies out there, whatever, if you want to know how to master Farmville, we're here for you. And we want questions from you guys. So please reach out. Uh, we're looking for feedback and things like that. And we, we get some, but we'd like to have more. So you know, this is your chance to get social with us. Uh, do whatever it takes, Brent or myself, either way. So again, my name is Brian Carpenter. And I'm Brent Piatti. And we really appreciate all your time. Thanks for joining us this week on The Hot Isle.